Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. When is it just a cut and when is it a whole lot more? Infections, MRSA, ulcers, these are just some of the types of wounds that we're going to be talking about today. We'll be discussing how hyperbaric oxygen can help. Now, before we do that and talk to the excellent physicians and staff from the Queen's Wound Care and Hyperbaric Center, we're going to be talking with three more of Hawaii Pacific Health's 2016 Summer Student Research Program Scholars. Now, these are folks who have given up their fun summer in between different years of college, and they have decided to do medical-oriented research right here in the islands. And the reason they do it is because we have some excellent medical facilities here, and they work with some top-notch docs here in Hawaii and really helping to forward the knowledge that we have about different medical topics. So we're going to talk with three of them today. We'll start off with my friend Sylvia Koo. Now, Sylvia, you're working with Dr. Greg Maldini, one of our fabulous surgeons at Straub Medical Center. Yes. And you're currently, you're going to be a senior at the University of Hawaii studying molecular cell biology. So tell me a little bit about this project that you were doing with Dr. Maldini. So with Dr. Maldini, we're focusing on acute abdominal patients who present to the ER at Straub Medical Center and seeing how long it takes for them to get to the OR and seeing if there's a relationship with post-surgical complications and length of stay. So like if somebody has really bad abdominal pain, they think it's their appendix or maybe it's their gallbladder or it's something serious, they go to the emergency room and you're looking to see how long does it take from when they go to the ER to if they need an operation when they go to the OR, the operating room. Yes. And does that make a difference if there's a delay? Sometimes the delay could be that they need scans or maybe they didn't come in immediately. And sometimes the delay may be that OR staff need to come in if it's the middle of the night. So what are you finding? So we actually looked at the time for them to get to the um, CT scanning imaging where they get diagnosed and then time it gets to them to get to the operating room from diagnosis. And we saw that there wasn't really a significant um, relationship with post-surgical complications and length of stay due to our relatively small complication rate. So basically, lots of people do well. Yes, yes. And if they had a delay with their scan or a delay to the operating room, it didn't stop them from doing really well. Yes. However, we did, we did see uh, four patients who did um, pass away due to the complication. And there's only four, but then out of the four, three of them had a, a, length of, a wait time of over 24 hours, which was kind of significant. So if they were really sick and there was more than a day, there could be a problem. Yes. You mentioned four. How many were in the study that you looked at? So we looked at 192 patients, and out of the 192, we had 25 complication rates. And that was um, based on a Clavian Dindel score, which um, basically... Okay, I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's a score where they see um, either going to be reoperated on if they get admitted to the ICU or if they did face death. Okay, so that's like a fancy score... That, that tells you stuff. And the stuff you figured out is that people do really well, particularly with the hands of a great surgeon like my friend, Dr. Maldini. And even if there's a slight delay, if it isn't an extended delay, they're probably still going to do well. Yes, yes. So over 24 hours, we saw that there usually is some kind of complication. But besides that, there aren't really too many wait times of over 24 hours. 
Okay, so don't wait that long. If you're home and you feel like you have severe belly pain, please go get checked out. The, the sooner you get it checked out, the better. And in the hospital, if there's an extended waiting time for whatever reason, then there could be problems. But if you're within a certain time frame, you're probably going to do great. Yes, yes. All right. Well, excellent. And your future plans include applying to medical school now. Is that right? Yes. I'm currently in the process of applying, waiting for secondary applications and interviews. Wonderful. Well, we could use some fantastic folks who learn, get a great education, come back here to the islands and help really further the medical care we can provide for folks. So thanks for sharing your project and for for coming back. And hopefully we'll see you again. Thank you. All right. Next, we have Alohi Nonis. She is working with my friend, Dr. Albert Yazawa, and also Dr. Nishikawa. And you're you're a junior about to be a senior at Crichton? Yes. And you're studying medical anthropology. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's that? Um, I kind of like to view it as putting the human back in medicine. So when you take all these hard sciences, it's really easy to strip someone down to just a mass of cells. But medical anthropology takes in consideration that you have a context, including social and economic factors. And we also look a lot at health systems and how that can impact your health care and your access and how different cultures approach um the sick role and how they view how disease matriculates and how you get sick. Really interesting. So mm-hmm. you're looking at it not just from the biology and chemistry perspective, but from all these other sociologic factors as well. Yes. Culture right. is really big in my major. I bet. And, you know, even Hawaii, we have a whole Native Hawaiian healing system that may not necessarily be the same as Western medicine, but often we can integrate those together and they tend to work really well when everybody's on the same page. So fantastic. Excellent. So you're learning that. What are you doing with Dr. Yazawa? What are you studying? So we're looking at um, to determine if there's a correlation between unintentional weight loss in short-term rehabilitation patients. So Dr. Yazawa, he's a geriatrician, and what he's finding is that a lot of patients are going through unintentional weight loss, and that's measured if you lose 5% of your total body weight in a month or 10% of your total body weight in six months. And that's really big in this population because it's related to frailty, and frailty has, it's linked to a lot of adverse health complications, including increased healthcare utilization. And so we're trying to see if there's a relationship between unintentional weight loss and length of stay. And what have you guys found so far? So people might be there. This is out of the hospital. So they're in mm-hmm. a short term rehab facility, whether it be a nursing home or the rehabilitation center or somewhere. So they're out of the acute hospital context. So they're going to get some rehab and they're doing all this exercise and they're losing weight. And in some populations, that's a bad thing. That could signal that maybe they're not getting enough nutrition based on what they're utilizing or maybe they're just not not strong enough to withstand whatever illness they have. So is there a correlation between weight loss that is not intentional and longer stays in rehab? Yes. So a a little bit under 10% of the patients that we studied experienced unintentional weight loss, and they experienced an average length of stay of 50 days, which was 20 days more than the 20 20 days more than the non-unintentional weight loss patients. And it's important to note that non-intentional weight loss encompasses anyone who their weight didn't change, they gained weight, or they lost weight, but it was prescribed by a physician or a provider. So it's kind of it, the only group that really showed 20 extra days in rehab were those that lost 
you know, 10% of their body weight in a year, 5% in, in a little bit less than that. And then they, it wasn't recommended. It's not like they're told, hey, listen, you've got to lose a few pounds. They're actually told not to, and it still happens. Exactly. And a lot of them are prescribed on, they get like appetite supplements to help with this because it's really bad. And you just see their health deteriorate because they're losing all this weight, not, it's very involuntary. And their average, they lose an average of 7.838% of their total body weight in a short period of time, which is not good. Not good. So what do you think we could do to help them to no longer lose weight? Um, well, I think one of the first steps, which is really what we're getting at with this project, was just pinpointing that it is indeed a problem because the literature doesn't really have a lot on this. But now that we do have research on this, it can be for providers to just be more aware that it's happening so they can monitor patients and then be more interventional with their treatments. So putting them on these appetite stimulants. Sure, there's medications that mm -hmm. make you more hungry. Sure, okay. Or just determining whether or not they're experiencing malnutrition and just looking at why they're experiencing all this unintentional weight loss. Because it could also be linked to like polypharmacy, which is an occurrence where you take nine or more medications, which is common in this population. So I would just throw it out there and be like, what if it's because the food doesn't taste good? <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm just thinking I work in a hospital, so I kind of know these things. And I'm wondering if one of the interventions that we should look at is, should it be allowed for certain family members to be able to bring in food that someone likes? You know, I mean, mm -hmm. respectfully, sometimes our hospital food is fairly culturally uniform and it doesn't really take into account people who like other foods whether it be sushi or whether it be Japanese food or Korean food or mm -hmm. something other than a standard diet and if you're losing weight and grandma loves her ramen I mean bring it in feed grandma ramen if she wants it so I guess one of the other factors that I would always wonder about is what did the food taste like um, but probably not something we could really study in a scientific fashion and not something I'm going to suggest we need to change but you know I'm thinking so have you tasted some of the food at some of these uh, places? We look specifically at patients discharged from Straub Medical Center and admitted into Halenani, which is a SNF, which stands for sure. a skilled nursing facility. Okay. Just learned it's pronounced SNF. And, um, but I did not try Halenani's food. I haven't either, but now I want to go. Right? I mean, just check it out and see. Maybe, Maybe that's... But again, the other thing we have to consider, you mentioned, is a lot of different medicine. A lot of people take lots of prescription pills. Mm -hmm. Some of them make you nauseous. Other ones might make you constipated. And here you are trying to recover. And yeah, I mean, I have tried Straub's food and some of it is really good. Some of it. So we'll leave it at that. But okay, so you're doing this study. Hopefully we're going to be able to improve people as they get older, increase their weight if they go to a short-term rehab and maybe be stronger, be able to participate in rehab and maybe not stay that extra 20 days and get home sooner. Yeah, it's really important be when you factor in insurance and how that coverage can impact that. Absolutely, because insurance will cover up to a certain number of days in short-term rehab if you have a skill that you need to keep learning. And after that, often it may not be covering any further. So 20 days is a huge amount times the average cost of a nursing home. Yes. Wow. All right. Okay. Well, last but not least, we have Sean Saito. Sean, you are working with uh, with Dr. Millicent Kaw, and you're also at the University of Hawaii. You're studying mechanical engineering. Is that right? Yes. 
Okay. So what were you learning in engineering this summer? Uh, not much in engineering this summer, mostly uh, medicine. Uh, so we got to shadow physicians, which was really great. And we also got to just uh, get, we got to have talks with doctors and they explained their careers in medicine and their pathways to medicine. And it was a good experience because I learned a lot more about medicine and then I think I'm leaning more towards medicine. All right. Excellent. So we haven't scared you away. That's good to know. Now, what sort of things are you studying and learning about with Dr. Call? So this summer we investigated post-operative hypotension in hip replacement patients. So um, some hospitalists have were noticing that patients uh, post-surgery were having low blood pressure. So uh, first we wanted to find out uh, if this was like true. Uh, so we looked at the incidence rates and from a patient poll of about 207 patients, there were 48 patients who did display hypotension, so about 23%. So that's pretty significant. So, and we also looked at factors that could be associated with the hypotension. So, so what do you think causes this? Like blood pressure goes low. So you have a surgery, you're in the recovery mode, your body's trying to recover and your blood pressure goes too low. What would make something like that happen? Some of the most common uh, factors would be like blood loss and like also the time you're in surgery because that takes a toll on your body. And then mo- mostly the blood loss would like lead to the hypovolemic shock and hypotension. But we also examined like certain medications that were taken prior to surgery. So sometimes there are patients who go in for surgery who have hypertension. Sure. And they will take uh, medications to treat this hypertension, uh, which like lowers your blood pressure. Sure. They'll take their blood pressure pills for high blood pressure. And then after surgery, their pressure is too low. Yeah. uh, But if they're taking too many or a certain type, then it can get too low. And that can also lead to problems because you can have hypoxia a heart attack. Uh, Super bad stuff. Bad stuff, yeah. So if your blood pressure goes too low after surgery, that can actually hurt your body. Yes. The goal is to keep your blood pressure at a certain level so that you don't have to worry about your recovery process. And it certainly sounds like a lot of times people are on more than one high blood pressure medicine and they take it before surgery because someone like me says, take your blood pressure <laughs> pills before surgery. And yet if they're on two, three or four, maybe by the time they have surgery, that's just way too much. It's still kicking in in their bloodstream and now there's trouble. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what could we learn from this? Uh, well, we actually found out that there is a link to one specific type of uh, blood pressure medication. So diuretics were had a significant uh, association with um, hypotension post-operative. Sure, so water pills. So things yeah. that make you lose water in your body, greater likelihood to cause problems after surgery than any other medicine. Yeah, and the thought behind this is because diuretics usually have a larger half-life than the other medications, so they can have half-lives of up to like 48 or um, 76 hours, I believe. Sure, so they, you know, you take a water pill, it lingers in your system. 72, yeah. And so it keeps hanging out in there. And you get that effect even though you don't need it anymore. Yeah. All right. So note to me, don't <laughs> let people take their water pills if they're about to have a hip surgery. Nope. Uh, because that would be a bad plan. Well, and that's the kind of information that we really don't know until you do this research to investigate it. And so, you know, again, thanks to you and also thanks to uh, Alohi and also Sylvia. You guys gave up your summer from, you know, part of your college experience to delve deep into medicine and find out if this is something you want to do in your future, but also help us to extend the knowledge that we have now and hopefully do better things in the future for patient care right here in the island. So thanks to all of you for doing that. I appreciate you coming on today. Now you have a big presentation Thursday. 
And if anybody ever wants to know what would make people nervous, imagine being in a room of about 500 folks, most of whom, okay, now I'm going to freak you guys out, (laughs) most of whom are doctors. They're all there to critically evaluate your presentations and ask you loads of questions from who knows where. (laughs) So, you know, hey, in comparison, coming on today was probably one of the more relaxing things you'll do this week. But thank you so much for being on and for giving up your time to be part of the Summer Student Research Scholar Program. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we are going to talk with Dr. Michael Shin. We also have Dr. Ajay Bat, and we have Bob Lambertson, and they're all from the Queen's Wound Care and Hyperbaric Center. We're going to talk some more about how do you know if that cut you have is going to heal, and what should you do if it doesn't. Now, we'll be, we'll be back, and we'll talk more about it. Remember, our show is your show, and if at any time you have a question, we're going to have some wound care experts ready to help share the answer. And you can always reach us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Well, what's a racial preference if it's not discrimination based on race? It is not discrimination to say, what does a student add based on his or race to the diversity of the school? It's wrong to equate preference with discrimination. The next topic up for debate, the Equal Protection Clause forbids racial preferences in state university admissions. This evening at 7, right after Humankind. Coffee growing has taken a firm hold across the islands, and the Maui Coffee Association is about to present its ninth annual Seed to Cup Coffee Festival. And on Hawaii Island, Momi Subiono is reviving the traditional practices and the benefits of Hawaiian herbal medicine. That's tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery, Kaiser Permanente, and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we're here in the studio talking about wounds. Now, we've got a panel of experts today because sometimes what you think might heal that takes forever needs some extra expertise. We have Dr. Ajay Bhatt. He's an emergency room physician working at the Queen's Wound Care and Hyperbaric Center. We have Dr. Michael Shin, also an emergency room physician working at the same location. And we have Bob Lambertson. He is a hyperbaric safety officer, and he also works with the docs to try and help make sure that we can develop a comprehensive wound care center here in the islands. And the reason we need such a thing is because, you know, lots of people may remember from a few years ago hearing about different types of bacterial infections that can get really, really badly infected, cause a lot of troubles for folks. Everybody's always worried about flesh-eating bacteria. There's another community-acquired infection that used to be just hospital-acquired called methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, or MRSA for short. And these are some of the types of infections that really we've got to keep a close watch on to make sure that they don't spread to other folks, but also treat the person who has it. So you guys are the experts, and I want to welcome you all to The Body Show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right. Dr. Shen, tell me, you're in the ER. You also part-time, and you also work at the Wound Center. What are the most common types of wounds that you see 
in your practice in the ER that often need the expertise of the wound care and hyperbaric center? So a lot of the wounds that we see in the emergency department are typically traumatic, and so people get cut or they hit something and, and they bust open their, their legs. But oftentimes, you know, we initially address those wounds in the emergency department, but oftentimes there's other contributing factors that prevent the wound from closing. So the way we classify it is initially we'll say there's an acute wound and then there's a chronic wound. And acute wounds, the inciting factor often like traumatic injuries, um, those factors are um, temporary and, and they go away um, and the wounds typically heal up in the expected time frame um, and stay healed. Whereas chronic wounds, you have an underlying problem that often um, those underlying causes uh, remain and they're persistent and they prevent the wound from healing. Like what kind of causes? Um, so like peripheral artery disease where you have a, a decreased blood flow or you could have continuous um, pressure for like pressure ulcerations, uh, venous insufficiency where you have uh, a lot of swelling in the lower extremities. And, you know, a lot of these mechanical, biomechanical factors that just kind of prevent the, the wound from healing. I would think diabetes would be another one of those factors. Maybe less blood flow to the legs if you have a cut in your feet. Or also, you know, I always tell people, bacteria love sugar. And if you've got some extra, they are super happy about it. Absolutely. Okay. Now, are there things, Dr. Ajay, are there things that people can do if they get a wound? Because you also work in the ER. You work at the Wound Care and Hyperbaric Center. Are there things people can do when they immediately have a cut to decrease the likelihood that this would become a chronic type of wound? Sure. Well, one of the biggest things to to uh, to do when you have an acute infection or acute cut is to try to uh, wash it off as best you can. Uh, so some of the common misconceptions are to use betadine or peroxide uh, to try to get uh, that wound pretty clean. But if you use normal saline or if you use regular water, uh, uh, tap water is fine. Uh, you can get rid of a lot of that acute infection. So like you just blew my mind because I'm a big peroxide queen. <laughs> so if you get, let's just say you're at the beach and you get cut on coral or something and you know you want to know what should I do, just pouring regular like water from a water bottle is enough? Well, so, Why am I obsessed with peroxide? Well, peroxide is good in the sense that it kills bacteria, but it also kills some healthy tissue. So we call that cytotoxic uh, when it kills uh, some of the cells. But if you use higher pressured water or saline over a wound, it actually does a pretty good job in preventing uh, further infection to occur. So I should give up my peroxide love? <laughs> For the time being, yes. All right. I'm going to take your word on that. Okay. God, I still have a bottle of peroxide in my car just in case. Okay. So when people think, you know, put on various type of tinctures or, you know, sometimes I've seen folks put alcohol in the wound and I'm like, oh, that's really got to hurt. And the person who does it usually says more than ow, and it's probably not good for radio. But, you know, so so that's not really necessary. Clean it out with some clean water, not necessarily ocean water, but some type of clean water. And then cover it, I would presume, and hopefully get more attention if necessary. Right. So you could use alcohol or even betadine um, around the actual wound, around the edges of the wound. But inside of the wound, uh, no that need to That just sounds like it would hurt, like way too much <laughs> for alcohol. Probably. Okay. All right. Now, 
I'm curious how when Dr. Shin, you mentioned like a normal wound should heal, an acute wound from trauma should heal in a certain time frame. What is the definition of acute versus chronic? When do we cross the line there? Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of debate in regards to that, but kind of the rule of thumb that we use at the wound center is that if the wound hasn't healed within 50% within the first two weeks or it's not completely healed after a month, then it's very likely that it is a chronic wound and there's some other contributing factors that need to be addressed at that point. Now, how would you know a wound is infected? So there's, you know, telltale signs of infection. Um, you know, there's different degrees of infection, first of all, but uh, the classic signs of infection would be redness, pain, swelling, um, and, you know, if it becomes a much more serious infection, then you could have uh, fevers and chills. So if you look at it and the redness is spreading and the wound doesn't look like it's healing, then you should seek medical attention because that could be infected. Absolutely. Should you keep wounds open or covered? It's a so, question, yeah? <laughs> so I, have a lot, I, I deal with this every day in the office. So there's a lot of debate. Um, you know, a lot of times there, there are certain dressings that you can use that are helpful. Um, the What we usually aim for is to make it not so wet, not too dry. And just kind of the Goldilocks rule is just right. Um, but in all honesty, a lot of wounds, even if you dry it out or, you know, as long as it's not too wet, usually they do pretty well. Um, where you face problems, again, is in your diabetic patients or people with peripheral artery disease and, you know, continued trauma. In those patients, then the dressing can have a little bit more of an importance to the long-term treatment. All right. Let's stick with our simple infections just right for the moment. And... You know, Dr. Dr. Ajay Bhatt, I wanted to ask you, so if you think somebody has an infection and they're on some oral or pill antibiotics, is there any value in them putting Neosporin on, on the wound? Or could that actually kind of hamper the wound healing in a way? Well, over at the wound center, especially for a chronic wound, we, we tend not to use as much Neosporin, but... Uh, I do see some value of using some type of antimicrobial type of dressing to try to combat that as well. Instead of just taking a pill antibiotic, uh, you can put on something topical as well, and that can hopefully help it as well. So if it's not infecting the surrounding skin and it is more of a chronic wound, you could put on a topical. I often suggest, you know, the, the one thing we want to avoid, and this gets back to what you mentioned, Dr. Shin, about, you know, that Goldilocks rule is to have a dressing that says it's nonstick, but have it still stick, and then to take it off and in doing so kind of unearth all the scab that has formed anyway. So it seems like you're almost making it worse in a way. Um, to an extent, yeah, that's true. Sometimes uh, in the past, we've been using wet to dry type of dressings. And the idea is very similar to that, where you put a dressing on and you kind of remove it. Um, unfortunately, at that point, it's somewhat dry. And as you take off that dressing, you're kind of ripping off some of that tissue that's starting to form and to become healthy. So the idea of putting something that's not too wet and not too dry, kind of as Dr. Shin was saying, something kind of in the middle is very good for, or what we think is very good for wound healing. All right. So let's talk about chronic wounds. Uh, Bob Lambertson, you're the safety officer at the hyperbaric component of the Queens Wound Care Center. And not everybody would be, would benefit from hyperbaric treatment. How did we come about realizing that this highly concentrated oxygen was actually helpful? Well, it began probably in the early 80s when uh, doctors started to know 
noticed that uh, we used hyperbaric oxygen for decom- treating decompression sickness for divers and uh, the bends is what they called it, and arterial gas embolism. And they decided or doctors figured out that the extra oxygen was doing more than just curing these simple things we were trying to, to fix. So they noticed that, or they noted, and they started to study the fact that the more oxygen you can get into the body, the more wound he- the more healing you can you can get you can gain. So they probably saw wounds that got better when someone was exposed to hyperbaric oxygen. That's correct. But there are certain individuals for whom this would be of benefit. Not every wound is going to respond to hyperbaric oxygen. That's correct. We have we actually follow the undersea hyperbaric medical society guidelines and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid uh, requirements for different indications. There's about 14 different indications now that are approved. So like, uh, what are some of those? Because I look at wounds and say, I don't know if that would be a benefit to hyperbaric treatment or not. How could someone look at a wound and say, that could, or maybe eh, that's probably not going to? They would. We would ask them to come to the, the wound care center and actually be seen by somebody that specialized like Dr. Shin and Dr. Bach. Um, so the, what would be some of those factors? I'm just curious. Dr. Shin, I mean, I'm sure you know, but like not everybody who has a cut is going to benefit from hyperbaric oxygen. So if they needed, how would we as physicians know or how might somebody know to say, hey, I think I need to get this checked out? Are there certain characteristic features? Sure. And so, you know, typically the way that we look at hyperbarics is that we conceptualize it as like a fertilizer. If you had a garden, you're trying to grow it, then there's a lot of fundamentals that you have to deal with. You have to have sunshine, water, you know, rain, gardening. And then hyperbarics is a fertilizer that you you would use once all these other contributing factors have been optimized or insured. And then, you know, if you still don't have growth at that point, you would use hyperbarics. And so... So you'd try other stuff. So, you know, just kind of the the fundamental uh, wound care things that we do, debridement, treat infections, you know, um, uh, optimize the biomechanics of the, the wounds address uh, swelling, uh, nutrition, just kind of the the basics and fundamentals. And at that point, should they not improve, then hyperbarics comes onto the table. Because there are some risks. You know, Bob, hyperbaric oxygen is not... There are some risks associated with the treatment. You have to be really careful. And you mentioned before the show that, you know, people have to go in with no perfumes or dyes or makeup or anything. I mean, you really have to make sure that everything is safe. That's right. We make sure that... uh since they're in a high oxygen atmosphere, we want to make sure that there's nothing that's going to be uh, uh, flammable, flammable or, explosive. or explosive or not conducive with oxygen itself. So we ask them to come in as if they just got out of the shower. By that, we mean no hair products, uh, no makeup, no deodorant, uh, clean, no Perfume, no makeup. Sure, people may not realize perfume is alcohol based, or right. some hairspray or hair products might be alcohol based. And going into a high oxygen environment, literally, it could cause a spark and you could have a problem. Well, that wouldn't cause a spark, but itself. But we just want to make sure that there's, we minimize the amount of flammable material in a chamber. And if it hasn't been proven safe in a high oxygen atmosphere, we just don't put it in. You just don't put it in. Okay. Now I remember Dr. Shin. We we had a discussion before, and you you kind of blew me away about. Protein loss in wounds. Yeah. So, you know, we talk about having protein and we want to eat it for our body to make sure that we stay healthy. And we don't realize that with a wound, you actually lose protein. It actually comes out of the wound. And how much protein is lost in a wound? 
Well, it really depends on, on the different types of wounds. There are certain wounds such as, um, for example, what we call venous insufficiency wounds, and you just have a lot of swelling, a lot of uh, pressure, and so you lose quite a bit of fluid that comes out of it. And, you know, uh, what research has showed where people actually um, measure the amount of protein that was collected, you know, they've said that you could lose up to a four-ounce steak uh, per day. Now, that that's a substantial amount, uh, but it, it's still significant, especially as some of the students were talking about that, you know, whenever people are sick or elderly and they're just not eating well, then, you know, any amount of protein that they lose through these wounds is substantial in terms of the balance of, you know, the, the protein needed to just sustain the body, the regular, you know, um, metabolism versus actually trying to heal it, which is an additional uh, amount of protein need. So the body needs more protein to to be able to heal this wound. And if you're losing it through the wound, you have to replace it, kind of getting back Mm -hmm. to trying to be in those optimal conditions that you're trying to maximize because of the potential that they could negatively impact wound healing. And sometimes some of these patients are, you know, in the situations such as where they're going to the nursing facilities. They've already just trying to recover from an infection, for example, and on top of that, try to heal, you know, so... You know, they have the, the deck is almost stacked against them in a lot of situations, which might explain why they try everything. Correct. Still have this wound, and then it needs some extra special treatment. That's where the hyperbaric treatment may come into play, depending on the circumstances. Possibly. Okay, uh, Dr. Bot. We talked a little bit about some of the risk factors for why somebody might develop a chronic wound. Let's talk a little bit about that because we describe peripheral arterial disease and venous disease in the same breath because they can cause effects of wounds and cause infections, but they're two totally different processes. Can you explain the difference? Sure. So peripheral arterial disease is essentially a narrowing of your arteries. Um, essentially, the arteries or the, the, the vascular vasculature that comes goes from your heart down to your legs primarily is your arteries and they pump blood down to your distal uh, extremities such as your feet uh, whenever you have this narrowing of your arteries uh, you have decreased perfusion which means you have decreased oxygenation to that tissue and often uh, as a result you if you have a break in the skin you develop an arterial wound Uh, which eventually can become gangrenous. So that's the reason why we often hear people who have problems with blood flow, blockages to their legs. If they get an infection, that could be really serious because they can't even get the blood flow to the leg to heal the infection. So that's when we hear about these problems and dare I say the word amputation because that's one of the potential effects if you have gangrene. Yes, that's true. Um, But on the flip side, a venous wound or a venous ulcer is often due to uh, decreased blood flow uh, going back up to the heart from the vein, from the venous system. And what often happens is if you have a leaky valve uh, or a lack of blood that can transport up to the heart, due to gravity, it kind of pulls down to your legs. And as a result, you get a lot of swelling to your legs, which is also called edema. Um, So any type of break in the skin uh, tends to cause that edema or tends to cause that wound to get larger and larger due to that edema. So the swelling, instead of allowing a wound to heal and seeing that contracture, that coming together of the skin edges, 
because all the fluid's coming out of the wound and protein and various other things, it's causing the edges to stay further apart. Correct. And that makes it harder for it to heal. Yep. So an artery issue is blood flow going to the leg. A vein issue is blood flow, or it could be anywhere other than the leg, but for the purposes of our discussion, a vein issue would be blood flow coming from the leg, and more swelling is associated with vein issues than with artery issues. Uh, That's correct. All right. And either one of those could potentially affect wound healing. That could be a problem that could limit the ability of the body to heal from a wound. Yeah, so the the arterial problem is mainly because of the lack of oxygen going to that tissue. Um, the venous problem is mainly the edema or that swelling uh, that causes a wound to stay open. Where does lymphedema fit into this? Lymphedema, I would say, is would if I was going to choose arterial or venous, would be more on the venous side because with lymphedema, you def you definitely have swelling, um, and so some of the treatments for venous. Uh, type of wounds and lymphedema type of wounds is compressing that leg or that extremity uh, to try to get that swelling down. Could you ever have both arterial and venous disease together? And Absolutely. That's something that we uh, see a lot over at the wound care center. Uh, we have patients who we'd like to ideally compress their legs. Unfortunately, if they have some pretty poor um, arterial disease, Compressing their legs too much might might cause, you know, the 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 actual wound uh, uh, to have even decreased even more decreased oxygenation, and that internally that in turn could even cause uh, the wound to get larger. So it's kind of having this fine balance of the two. Uh, so some of the things we often tell our patients with this mixed kind of picture is to keep their legs elevated. Uh, we often get. Um, uh, to try to, we often try to refer them to get revascularized, which is uh, getting uh, opening up that artery, so we can actually compress that leg. Because that way, that would get rid of some of the swelling and potentially lead to better healing, which is the ultimate goal. Exactly. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with three experts, Dr. Ajay Bhatt, Dr. Michael Shin, both emergency room physicians. They also work at the Queens Wound Care Hyperbaric Center, and Bob Lambertson, who is the safety officer for the hyperbaric chamber. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about how do you manage wounds. We've talked a little bit about what to do if you have a wound, how to clean it out, how to wash it out. But what else are there? What else can you do? And if you have a chronic wound or know someone who does, are there things that they can do at home or things you can do to help support them in that treatment? Now, if you or a loved one has a question about a wound, this is your chance to ask an expert. You can always join us at 941-3689, toll free from our neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Want to hear how contemporary poets are inspired by those who came before? Then listen to New Letters on the Air as Anne-Marie Fife reads her work influenced by earlier Irish poet W.B. Yeats. These aren't poems that respond to individual Yeats poems. They're the poems I write, knowing that Yeats is looking over my shoulder. Anne-Marie Fife reads from her five books on New Letters on the Air. Tuesday evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. 
On August 20th, double down with the double bass of Ernie Proventure in an Atherton concert that features the bass in combinations of classical and jazz. Make your reservations at hprtickets.org or at 955-8821 during business hours. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership. Wealth Management. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we are talking about wounds. What happens when you have that sort of cut or no matter how it happened, maybe an ulcer that just won't heal. Usually these are on the skin, and there's some unique features that make people more likely to heal or maybe less likely to heal. Now, we're talking today with folks from Queens Wound Care and Hyperbaric Center. That's Dr. Ajay Bhatt, Dr. Michael Shin. They're both emergency room doctors, and they work at the Wound Center, and also Bob Lambertson. He's the hyperbaric safety officer. And we're talking about how do you know if this wound that you have should have already healed. Now, in most cases, you know, well, I I guess I shouldn't assume. In most cases, do wounds heal, Dr. Shin? I mean, if you don't have these other factors of arterial disease or venous disease, diabetes, or some other problem, should a standard wound get better if it's not infected and you just take care of it, keep it covered, treat it as best you can? Do most of them just recover? Most of them do. I'd say uh, the large majority. Uh, But sometimes there are situations where you have um, either what what you would say is necrotic debris or burden that's within the wound that uh, kind of prevents the wound from healing, or sometimes it's just the shape um, uh, that needs to be kind of addressed and and kind of cleaned out and, and reshaped. How would shape have an effect? I'm curious about that. So sometimes you have situations where you have what's called undermining. So it's kind of like, again, going back to the garden analogy. There are certain, you know, you ideally for a garden, you want a flat plot of land. You're not going to put it, you know, like within a, you're not going to have like a big pothole all all throughout it. And and similar, the body has certain shapes that it responds the best to. And so, for example, if you had wounds that had like a deep tunnel or it kind of has like an awning around the the wound bed. Um, oftentimes those have to be removed as well. So if somebody gets a standard skin tear, we see a lot of people mm-hmm. who come in, maybe their skin is really frail, mm-hmm. they might be elderly, or somehow they nick a corner of it, and it kind of comes off in an L shape. Mm-hmm. Should they put the skin back on top? Uh, we usually do, uh, as long as, you know, it, it wasn't like a, uh, I guess, a dirty um, a dirty location of where they injured it or how they injured it. And again, going back to Dr. Bott's recommendation, we'd probably just irrigate it in the ER, for example, uh, just with the, we would use saline, but if it's at ho- if it was at home, I would just use tap water if it was family. And then I would probably put a Band-Aid to kind of hold the skin over it. And some of those steri strips, sometimes yeah. those work pretty well. All right, we've got a caller in the line. We have Petar calling in from Maui. Welcome to The Body Show. Hey, thank you. What can we do for you today? Uh, well, I just heard that with hydrogen peroxide, maybe it's good at first after you get an initial wound, but not to do it over a long period of time because it might kill the good stuff as well. I don't know if that's a rumor, if you can speak to that. Well, I know who can speak to that, and that's Dr. Bott, who blew me away, because I like to keep peroxide in the trunk of my car, just in case you go to the beach, you get an infection, and he's like, you don't got to do that. <laughs> so tell me again, Dr. Ajay, why should I why should I get rid of my peroxide obsession? 
Well, so peroxide, like I as I said before, is it's very good in killing the bacteria, but it's also very good in stalling a wound to heal. So, um, you know, it depends. Uh, you it kills know, good and bad. It, it does kill good and bad, exactly. So with with peroxide uh, and if – well, I'm sorry. If you have an acute wound and you don't have – uh, some of these factors such as diabetes or malnutrition and things like that, by using tap water or normal saline to clean off that debris and get that wound as clean as you can without using peroxide, that wound should heal just fine. Um, sometimes if you use peroxide, it can actually delay that wound healing and delay that wound closure. Excellent. I was wondering. I've heard that. Can I go a little further with this question? Sure you can. All right, how about in the ears? Uh, as a surfer, afterwards, sometimes I mix 50% alcohol, 50% hydrogen peroxide. Well, I, I think it's kind of the same type of thing. I think um, alcohol, peroxide uh, kind of fall in the same type of category. So, you know, I, I would I would try to use something that's uh, probably as, you know, um, not as cytotoxic as possible. So, you know, my recommendation is probably going with something a little bit uh, less toxic, such as, you know, water, normal saline. Okay, so, so after surfing in some dirty water, and I'm like, oh, my ear feels a little weird. I don't want it to get stuck in there, you know, the dirty water or whatever. Um, you're thinking just saline water? You could. You could use also, you know, soap, a little bit of soap with, with some water is, is good as well. What about that swimmer's ear stuff? I mean, I see that sold in the pharmacy, and I wonder, you know, I have a lot of patients who like to go out in the water, and the swimmer's ear is almost like a drying agent that kind of helps dry out the ear. Is that a good idea? or? You know, I, I, I'm going to be honest. Uh, it, it, it's, it probably is okay. Um, for the most part, I, I, I do think, um, you know, kind of like I said, I, I think cleaning it out as best you can, getting all that kind of – gunk out of there, um, if possible, is is probably the best thing you can do. Uh, so, right. you know, using that a little bit higher pressure with with water, if you have, you know, some type of syringe or something to kind of put some pressure into that, into the ear or into a wound, um, that should help. It should clear it out. All right, Pitar, I hope that answers your question. I was obsessed with peroxide too, but apparently I just have to be more careful. And, you know, I think the idea is that with the ears, maybe there's just an exposure. It's not necessarily a wound. So it may just be clearing out the ear with a wound. You know, there's that issue with the peroxide. Too much is maybe just too much. And if you have no other risk factors, it should be able to heal on its own. Clean it out, though. I, I, I mean, you clearly yeah. said clean it out. If you fall in gravel, if there's pieces of road in your knee, please get that out of there because that could be a source of trouble. All right. We've got another caller. We have Wiley on the phone from Kamawela. Wiley, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. Hi there. What can we do for you? Yes. Um, I have a comment. Uh, Fifty-two years ago when I was in Navy pilot training at Pensacola, Florida, and we had uh, survival training in the boonies, Eglin Air Force Base, we were taught that if we got seriously injured, uh, you know, with uh, open wounds, and there was no prospect of, of rescue for days or weeks, to allow flies to um, lay their eggs in the wound so that the maggots could keep the wound clean, because the maggots eat the bacteria, they eat the dead tissue, but they don't eat the healthy tissue. And I, I understand, uh, finally, 52 years later, I'm hearing on the air that medical science is finally coming around to this. So I was just wondering um, 
what your uh, experts uh, have to say about what my comment. Thank you very much. Oh, well, thanks for bringing it up, and I'm going to leave it to them because I realize that there may be some medical science behind it, and I'm, I got to tell you, I'm a little grossed out, but it's just because I have like a bug phobia, <laughs> and it's not because it doesn't work. So, you know, I've heard about leeches, and leeches are good to get rid of stuff, but I don't know. It sounds like Wiley, I mean, they probably learned good first aid if you're in the middle of, you know, the battlefield, and you're not going to be, you're not going to be picked up for weeks or so, but... Tell me, Dr. Shin, what do you think? So this kind of has to do with what's called debridement. And um, again, the way I describe it to my patients and what we usually do is we actually um, take a scalpel and remove dead tissue. And what happens is in larger uh, chronic wounds, you have a development of a lot of uh, dead and contaminated tissue. And until that's physically removed, um, either, and usually in the wound center, we take a scalpel to remove it, that kind of becomes a source of infection and food for bacteria. And so it makes it almost impossible to get rid of uh, infection sources. And so um, what the maggots do is that they do a really good job at eating only the dead tissue. And so, in fact, the maggot, although it's, I guess some people will think of it as some type of a infection, it actually uh, removes the bacterial burden by removing not only uh, the food source, but also it helps clear um, that the bad stuff from the wound so that the wound can actually heal. So in a lot of ways, I, I look at it like taking out weeds from a garden. All right, Wiley, we're on board. Like it or lump it. And I'm kind of lumping it, but apparently... Dr. Shin is liking it. So, you know, and I think a lot of times if you're in that situation where you don't have any other options, there are some unique things that people are told to do to help survive. And that survival mode often uses nature as its own way to heal. And in fact, in this case, yeah, it sounds like that's actually, it's it's a way to survive some sort of wound that might not otherwise be able to be attended to and actually has been shown to work. So... Thanks for grossing me out right around dinner time, uh, but I'll just keep that thought to myself. Oops, I think I just said it. All right, so so maggots could be something, and are there other things that we have learned to put in wounds that we used to maybe not necessarily think would be the most appropriate, but these days actually helps? Are there other sorts of things that maybe we rediscovered from 50-some years ago or maybe we're discovering now? Well, we, you know, back uh, thousands of years ago, the Egyptians had used honey on wounds, and that's something that's become. Uh, yeah, I've heard about uh, that. What's up with that? Bees like honey. <laughs> Bees do bacteria like honey. like honey, right? That is correct. Um, you know, with with honey, it it actually does work in that sense. But as Doctor Shin was saying, you want a wound that's not too wet and not too dry. So you want to put something that's kind of in the middle, and honey kind of fits that middle type of. Uh, dressing. So by putting honey, you know, we, we do use medical grade honey a lot, um, something called Manuka honey. And it, it seems to work relatively well on some of these wounds. So it would actually be a better choice to put something like honey, medical grade honey on it, as opposed to like a neosporin that could have some of those you mentioned earlier, cytotoxic effects. Some people don't get as much healing with neosporin. Although it does keep addressing from getting stuck, there might be a negative consequence to that as well. So uh, honey might help. Yep, yeah, that's that's correct. All right. Now, are there any limits to what you could put on a wound when you're going into a hyperbaric chamber? 
Bob, you deal with hyperbaric chambers and who gets to go in the machine and who might get a benefit. Would there be any anything they couldn't put on the wound if they were about to go into the chamber? You said kind of like come in like you're just out of the shower. So would you want to have that complete wound exposed to as much oxygen as possible? No, we don't need the wound exposed to the oxygen because the benefit that you're receiving in the chamber is from the oxygen that you're that you're breathing in, and it's being carried from your lungs to your blood and down to your to the tissues. So it really has nothing to do so with actual physical exposure. It's nothing topical, no. So it really is, and you have to have good lungs to be able to breathe it in, presumably. Well, we make sure that you've got a chest X-ray or or lung adequate lung out. capacity. Yeah, lung okay. Capacity, so. All right. We've got another caller. We have Sachi on the phone from Kona. Sachi, welcome to The Body Show. Hi there. Hi there. Um, I have a question about aloe vera. I had a very bad, very bad burn, and I put my hand in a glove overnight with um, aloe vera fresh from the plant and some um, and some uh, vi- apple cider vinegar. And I got up the next morning, took the glove off, and my hand was all wrinkled. And when it dried, there wasn't even a blister. I wonder, it's the only plant that's etched into the pyramids as one of the sacred plants. And also tobacco for, um, that was a sacred plant to the Native Americans that they used on uh, um, bites, centipede bites, and to keep bugs out of their tents. I was curious about those two things. Yeah, I mean, it sounds we're learning a lot about wounds and what has been used in the past and how that could actually be related to what we use now. I've heard about aloe vera and, you know, there have been those times when I've gone out in the sun and I haven't reapplied sunscreen and you get a burn and you hear about putting on aloe vera. So I'm curious, aloe vera for wounds, Dr. Shin? Um, You know, aloe vera could, you know, it has its benefits to certain wounds, um, you know, Typically, for the wounds that we deal with for chronic wounds, oftentimes, um, the dressing is probably the least important contributing factor in terms of what we have to optimize. However, for, you know, fairly superficial wounds or smaller wounds, then, you know, that there's as long as you don't make the wound too wet again, going back to the Goldilocks rule is uh, you don't want it too wet, you don't want it too dry. And, and most often, you know, some aloe vera, honey, um, neosporin probably is going to do just fine. So these are things that actually could be utilized to try and help with wound healing. And I guess, again, there's a difference between a burn and a wound and an acute wound, meaning something that happened yesterday versus chronic, meaning it's been there for for weeks at a time. Now, I'm curious, what is, and this is just my own (laughs) curiosity, what is the largest size wound that you've treated at the Queen's Wound Care and Hyperbaric Center, and how small could you get it? I just want a visual. I, I would have to say that the the largest wounds that we deal with are often the easiest to deal with. I mean, we have some people that have wounds that are, uh, you know, recently we had someone that had a a wound that was about a thousand square centimeters across across their back. Or sometimes you have people who have really large legs and they have uh, basically a, almost a degloved leg where you have a wound that's completely circumferential from the top down all the way down to their ankle. Uh, from their knees. And so those are often really large, but, you know, those just need a little TLC and those often do really well. Um, I would say oftentimes the hardest ones are really small ones that Hmm. have been there for a long time or, you know, uh, pressure wounds on on your buttocks or on the bottom of the foot. So those sorts of things where it's really hard if you have a pressure wound Mm -hmm. and you sit all the time to try and have that heal. If you have something on your feet and you walk around, it makes it harder for that healing process. Absolutely. Curious. I wouldn't have thought the smaller ones would be more difficult, but I can see why. 
Now, what should someone do if they have a loved one who has some type of pressure wound or pressure sore? What are some of the basics? Because, you know, a lot of times people, they get older, they can't get up and out of bed very easily. Maybe grandma does lay down most of the day or sit in a wheelchair. If someone like that gets a sore, a pressure sore, usually in the buttock area, what should they do? Dr. Bott? Well, the biggest thing um, is to, to obviously is to, to stay off of the wound as best you can. It's kind now, of hard <laughs> if it's where you're sitting. Exactly. So uh, with somebody who's a little, a little bit uh, – who has limited mobility and can't walk or cannot ambulate, it does make it a little bit more tough. So I think some of the things that we recommend is to have the patient turn every two hours. And this idea of turning every two hours – uh, was actually based on patients that were um, in World War II that developed these uh, decubitus wounds. But note that these patients that had these develop that developed these decubitus wounds were 18 years old, 20, 18 to 22 years old, were healthy uh, for the most part, didn't have many comorbidities. So the thought of turning these patients every two hours should probably be every hour to hour and a half uh, to try to get that that wound some. Uh, uh, some time for it to, to heal up and not uh, have additional pressure on it. So really changing body position helps quite a bit. Correct. And there are other uh, things that can help. Uh, there are different mattresses, for example, that people can use. Uh, we do often uh, apply for an air mattress or an alternating air mattress, something that uh, can offload a little bit more pressure on these patients that are a little bit more difficult to turn. Um, there are uh, other things that you can do, such as putting a cushion or a, a pillow on that on that wound itself uh, to try to help with some of that offloading. Because again, we're trying to make sure that we create an optimal environment for that wound to heal. Correct, Doctor Shin. What are the consequences of having a long-term wound? It could get infected. Sure. And, you know, that's kind of the natural progression of any wound that you have for a prolonged period is that eventually you'll have uh, sporadic episodes of infection. And depending on how deep it goes, um, you do have the risk of uh, developing a bone infection. Uh, and that could be even more serious. Correct. And so, again, you know, going for wounds, there, there's so many different factors. For example, for the pressure wound we were just talking about, the pressure is one thing. But, again, you have to look at some of the other fundamentals like nutrition, um, you have to look at their mobility. You know, is there a bone infection that needs to be addressed? Um, and so there's so many different factors that um, uh, result in having chronic wounds. Well, and I feel like I've learned a lot from each one of you today. I appreciate all of you from coming in. Dr. Bott, I will put my peroxide away. <laughs> Thank you. And Bob Lambertson, it's when you breathe in the oxygen, it's not because it's topically on your wound. I don't know why I was thinking that. And Dr. Shin, all the different factors that we need to maximize and the amount of protein that can be lost in a wound. All of these things, really important. Thank you, all of you from the Queen's Wound Care and Hyperbaric Center. If you want to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. If you want to get in touch with the Queen's Wound Care Center and Hyperbaric Center, you can do so calling the Queen's line. Our engineer is David Chong. Executive producer Beth Ann Kozlovich will be here next week right here on The Body Show. See you then. Mm-hmm.